Stop! You violated the law. It's the full preview podcast. USC 287. Alright guys, let's do this. I'm Feño, this is the full preview. UFC 296, Edwards versus Covington. Uh, this is going on in the United States, T-Mobile Arena, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, we have 14 fights here, two title fights, four undisputed championships, non-interim bullshit this time around. And I gotta say, this is a very good one, to be honest. Um, I find something interesting about pretty much every fight in this card. And I think most of them should deliver on on action, too, by the way. This is a long one. Uh, these are the longest notes I have ever taken, so let's get right into it. As always, we're going by topology order from bottom to the top, starting with the very first prelim until we get to the main event. The first fight of the night. It's a welterweight bout between Randy Brown and the king of Kung Fu, Muslim Salikov. So let's begin with Randy Brown. Brown is a very long and lanky kickboxer, uh, stands very heavy on his front foot. He's constantly like changing stances. He feints and probes with side kicks, uh, especially to the legs, looking to throw long jabs, doubling and tripling, looking to line up his rear hand or kicking retreating opponents. He's tricky to hit to the head in open space as he maintains a very long distance and draws counters with the jab to deep to the inside very deep and then pull back for any subsequent shots. However, this head movement sequence can become predictable against combination punchers, so that's something to watch out for. He has been easy to push against defense and his defense is uh, less effective without room to move back, he depends a lot on having that space behind his back to move up, uh, to move back and control the distance. That said, he's good at catching clinches to smaller fighters who get past his lead hand or swipe him against the fence. And then inside the clinch, uh, he's good at using his long levers to find uh, knees from collar ties and aim for elbows during breaks. Um, not a strong offensive wrestler, but Brown is a tricky grappler who knows how to use his length to put barriers get back up and wrap up submissions, especially from the front headlock. That's where he's at his most dangerous when it comes to grappling. On the other hand, we have Salihov, Sanda practitioner. The king of Kung Fu mostly likes to move at range, feigning and looking to set up big single shots. Most of his game revolves around a stepping jab feint, from which he can set up a good array of attacks. His favorites are the left hook, the right overhand, lead switch kicks, and punishing rear front kick, uh, punishing rear front kick to the body. Once he gets the reaction he wants, he also is dangerous with spinning attacks, mixing well the spinning back kick, the wheel kicks, and the spinning back fist. If he draws counters, he can also counter with short combinations, favoring the left hook, or he can change levels for clinches, in which he actively looks for hooks on the breaks or for takedowns, having a solid single leg. Salikov's biggest problem is he's not having tools to manage the pace and his defense relies too much on, on distance and footwork as he only moves his head during the initial part of an exchange. His cardio has also been a bit of a concern late in his career. So the opener here brings us what should be an exciting fight between mid-tier welterweights. 
The length of brown is usually a puzzle for most fighters and it will be interesting to see how Salikov deals with it. Salikov has good distance management and has an extended range granted to him by his kicking game, but it will be very important for him to make Brown bind off his feints to set up his offense. Salikov might also be able to complete takedowns, but I wouldn't expect him to accomplish much uh, from top position against Brown. And lastly, Brown has been vulnerable to leg kicks and his big slips can expose him to head kicks. Despite all of that, I think uh, Salikov will struggle finding the shots he needs against Brown as he's not one to string long combinations and Brown's pace and jabs are likely to fatigue him as the fight goes on, so my pick here is Brown by decision. We move up to heavyweight for next bout. It is a fight between Shamil Gassiev, newcomer coming from the Contender Series, against Martin Budai. Let's begin with, with Gassiev. Uh, he's a big wrestler from Dagestan. He likes to hide his shot behind a deep jab or a straight right. Uh, that he throws with very little tell, to be fair. Wrestling is his A game and he can shoot at the legs with surprising uh, agility for a big man. He has some chain wrestling shots, but he's at his more effective getting clean on the hips uh, on the initial shot. Solid top control will steadily work on passes until he gets a dominant position, predominantly the mount from where he finishes fights with either big round and pound or taking the back for the rear naked choke. Oh, which to be fair is like a rare uh, skill set to have at heavyweight, uh, being able to have a, a, a decent rear naked choke. If Gassiev is forces to strike on the feet, he doesn't have much on the way of defense, but he has power. Uh, he has some efficiency to his punches and can surprise with an uppercut for variety. Cardio seems suspect, but has been, he has been able to fight well tired when he has needed to. And on the other hand, we have Martin Budai. A big lumbering heavyweight who likes to march people down behind a high guard in open space with a solid jab and a winding right hand. He does his best work against the fence where he can grind on people using wizards, underhooks and collar ties to work dirty boxing, elbows and more importantly big knees that he lands effectively to both the body and the head. Uh, he's a lot less effective moving backwards uh, but he keeps a high guard can move his head at times and offers to counter with the leg check hook and uppercuts from both sides. Uh, he seems to be a decent grappler for the division and he does have a background in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, Budai might not be the most dynamic athlete but durability, toughness, cardio and consistency are great assets to have, especially at heavyweight. Gassiev is the more athletic fighter and it can be very hard for big dudes to get up from bottom, especially from under a uh, fellow big boy. So the chances for a knockout or a wrestling-based performance are there. But I gotta side with Budai, who not only is more test against high-level opposition, but seems to be better at better and more consistent uh, striker by a good margin. And also a better gas tank by the evidence that we have so far. Uh, Budai gets the knockout on the second round, that's my pick. Next is a featherweight bout between Andre Fili and Lucas Almeida. Let's begin with Philly here, uh, a lanky switch stance team alpha male fighter. Philly does a great job of establishing long jabs from both stances to build the rest of his game. Long one-twos, check hooks against incoming foes and leg kicks off the jab, uh, off the jab thread all work together. Of notes are his sneaky head kicks that he throws from both stances and from both sides. And he hides them very well behind the straight shots be it flashing the jab or before behind an actual straight shot from the same rear side he's kicking. 
Phil is also a capable counterpuncher, especially when opponents have to close the range uh, he imposes. He can slip or fade into shots and put combinations together. He's a good wrestler and grappler. Philly has an excellent quick level change despite his frame and he's good at finishing both doubles and singles. From top he works his way to mount and will use the arm triangle to take the back. From his back he will look to wrestle up with the single leg. His front chokes are also an, an ever-present danger. Historically, Philly has had trouble being countered, particularly time with same time counters or during prolonged exchanges when the head movement stops and the shin comes up. Durability has taken a bit of a hit in later years, but he still has like great recovery and cardio. His opponent, Lucas Almeida, a top Brazilian kickboxer, Almeida likes to move in open space, feigning, looking to get volume going with his 1-2 and leg kicks waiting for spots to close the distance with short combinations or fade back and counter incoming opponents. He attacks all three levels consistently and has a predilection for the left hook, both leading and in the counter. Head movement can be inconsistent as he likes to move his head on the outside feinting and often uh, slips on the outside with his right hand to load the left hook, but he can stay in the center line when closing the distance or while jabbing. Uh, he can be backed up to the fence where he mostly relies on blitzes and scaring opponents with exchanges to get back to the center. Uh, Almeida is decently strong in the clinch. He will look for collar ties to counter body locks and is dangerous with both elbows and knees. He can dig for underhooks but his defensive wrestling is lacking in any kind of layer exchange. Positionally decent from top and with good ground and pound, his ability to get up from heavy top players seems limited. This is a fight between two tall strikers for the division. Uh, that said, Philly enjoys a significant reach advantage and also fights uh, uh, much longer than Almeida, who likes to get on the inside to put combos together. Both guys seem vulnerable to the counters of the other, so it will be interesting to see who gets to sex with their lead hook on the inside first. During prolonged exchanges inside the bucket, I think I gotta give an edge to Almeida, who seemingly carries more firepower and seems to stay more aware, but Philly will probably get to establish his jab, his kicks, and will be the one forcing the Brazilian to close the gap, so maybe the Sheikh Hook shows up there for Philly. On top of that, it's likely, it's likely that Philly will be able to put his takedowns to good use in this matchup. Uh, it is a winnable matchup for both, uh, and it has potential for big action. But I gotta side with Philly here, Philly by decision is my pick. Next we have a flyweight bout between Tagir Ulanbekov and Cody Durden. Ulanbekov is a long Dagestani wrestle kickboxer, he fights from a tall stance and uses clean and long jabs, one-twos and front kicks to maintain range at open space. He likes to keep fights tidy, but his stance can collapse during prolonged exchanges, especially when looking to close the distance with the right hand. He maintains a good volume on the feet. Uh, defense mostly relies on distance, stepping back, pulling back or collapsing and grabbing clinches. Head movement in the pocket can be worrisome, but he keeps punching and usually moves his feet well. In the clinch, he will look for collar ties and wizards to control posture and attack dirty boxing with his free hand, and or set up knees that are helped to find the target with his length. Because of his tall stance and height, he often favors uh, the wizard to defend takedowns, and it's usually hard to take downs unless he's surprised in transitions. From his back, he's excellent at elevating his opponents with butterfly hooks and getting to a leg to grab a single and wrestle, and wrestle up. From top position, he's not particularly heavy, but he's very good at flowing with scrambles to maintain an advantage and his front headlock series of chokes is where he is at his most dangerous. Durden, on the other hand, is a relentless pressure wrestler. 
Durden likes to stay on the face of his opponent, pushing them back to defense, or shoot a takedown at the legs if they don't back up. Durden mostly likes to walk behind a jab and leg kicks, but he lands his best shots using his pressure to counter, reading a shot, sleeping, coming back with his own. Defense is not very layered and will back up before resuming pressure if the read of for a counter isn't there. And he also can be kickable, but opponents need to be wary of the takedown threat. Uh, once Jordan gets on a shot, he's a relentless chain wrestler who can grind doubles and singles against the fence, but does some of his best uh, work wearing opponents uh, from the back body lock with mad returns. Once on the ground, he's very sticky, mixing top half, leg rights, and back takes to burn minutes of the clock. Positional control is not unescapable, but that might just work to his advantage because his match returns usually tire his opponents out. Despite his ability to take the back, he hasn't been very effective submitting foes at the elite level, not yet at least. This is an interesting duel between grapplers. On the feet, Durden will most likely be the one pressing forwards and is probably the biggest hitter of the two. Ulenbekov has the cleaner mechanics in both kicks and punches, uh, especially if he can maintain range, but Durden is the better counter-puncher of the two with more pop, especially if they trade on the inside, I think I got a favor Durden there. Uh, Durden will have to navigate the submission threat of Ulenbekov, particularly the guillotine. Uh, when he shoots his takedowns, he has been caught with front headshots in the past. And... But Ulanbekov, uh, he's like a tremendous scrambler, but he hasn't deal with the pressure and mad returns of a wrestler like Cody Durden before. A submission win can come from many scenarios from for Ulanbekov, but I'm think I'm I'm siding with Durden being the more physically and and grindy fighter to earn a decision victory here. Next, we move up to light heavyweight. It's about between Alonso Manyfield and Dustin Jacoby. Manyfield, a big and powerful athlete who mostly waits at open space for opportunities to counter, but will occasionally fill in the gaps with jabs and low kicks. Manyfield does the best of his minimal striking toolset when he gets to counter opponents from a long distance, intercepting their steps with jabs and low kicks, and unleashing a fast strike right hand when the opponents open up with anything bigger. He can be more aggressive when he's looking to wrestle, in which cases he will move forwards looking to disguise his shot behind a big overhand right. Not a liar chain wrestler, but Manyfield has a good level change and his strength means he will put uh, down anyone of a good entry. Good positioning and very heavy from top position. Uh, he will usually wait to get a dominant position be before letting the big ground pound go. The first layer of takedown defense is pretty solid for Manyfield, but the rest can fall apart during prolonged exchanges and, can and he can also be a victim to mad returns. Uh, cardio management and movement efficiency have been a big improvement for Manyfield lately in his bouts, but his low activity probably means he's still prone to tire it forced to work hard. And his opponent is Jacoby, an awkward and long kickboxer. Jacoby likes to stay at long range, fighting hands from both stances, sneaking jabs, breaking rhythm, and using a knee lift feint that he uses to set up uh, stiff leg kicks and front kicks to the body. Jacoby keeps a high pace and usually moves his head after attacking, either ducking or pulling his head back after baiting with a front foot heavy stance. Once he finds his range, he will put combinations of long loopy punches together, mixing in uppercuts without putting 100% into his shots, and he plays the threat of his punches to kick and vice versa very well. 
uh, Jacobi usually attacks all three levels and is usually pretty good at doubling up sides too, so he remains pretty unpredictable. Reading manipulation of the hand fight and his hip feints allow him to control initiative and find his spots. Takedown defense is mostly solid and can work his way back up uh, to his feet if needed, but he is not a layer wrestler. Uh, Jacobi mostly struggles when he's denied to settle his range, when fighters feint with him, and with mid combination counters, especially when he's letting go, he can be vulnerable at those times. Jacobi is probably one of the better equipped fighters in the division to deal with many fields newfound affinity for countering, especially because Jacobi is not likely to be put off of his high work rate and because many fields doesn't offer much variation in his countering. Uh, even if he has a good trigger and big power and speed, I think uh, he can get a little bit predictable. I feel like wrestling might be the key here for many feel, as that's Jacobi's weakest link and takedowns would probably open up paths to land the big shots, especially the right hand for many feel. That said, Jacobi is rangy and not easy to get like clean entries for because he maintains a very good range. Uh, uh, his sheen and durability have been a below-level asset, and I expect uh, him to wear on many field the longer the fight goes, so my pick is Jacoby by decision. The next is a flyweight bout between Casey O'Neill and Ariane Lipsky. O'Neill, a physical and tough all-rounder, O'Neill likes to walk her opponent down behind a stiff jab, looking to either put a strike right behind it or to draw a counter to pull and get back with her right hand. Her head can be a bit stationary, but she has good timing and throws back in the pocket. She also throws the overhand especially to transition to clinches or shoot takedowns, both of which she will also look for defensively. A solid grappler, O'Neill mostly shines during transitions where her well-roundness really become a strength for her. And from top position where she has tremendous control flowing with her opponents until she gets to the back or the mount. Uh, she has huge ground pound and good submissions and that makes her very dangerous fr from top, especially if she gets to her like end game positions that are the back and the mount. The biggest problem for O'Neill is the lack of depth for both her striking and the wrestling, as she's very good in transitions, but her limitations can show when she's stuck up, when she's stuck in one particular area. Uh, cardio and toughness are some of her best qualities when it comes to intangibles. Her opponent is Lipsky, uh, I would describe as a meat and potatoes kickboxer with decent pop. Lipsky likes to pressure behind feints, looking for spots to coop, to put short combinations together. She doesn't have much tools to control the pace, but she makes sure to put uh, numbers together during every exchange, and that's how she piles volume, attacking all three levels and making a good use of kicks to punctuate her combinations. Uh, not much in the way of head movement for Lipsky, but she's a cap capable counterpuncher, both with the right and the left hook. She's strong in the clinch, she's very urgent about digging for underhooks and she can find punishing knees to the body from a number of different positions inside the clinch and she also will look for elbows during clinches. She also has some counter wrestling ability in the form of trips and throws from the clinch, especially when being pushed, he has shown a very good wizard kick at times. Uh, she's a solid grappler with good ground pound and scrambling. Uh, but she has been controlled as submitted by solid top controls, top control players in the past. Uh, improvements in that area might are, are an incognito for the moment. 
she has been improving quite constantly lately and the cardio seems to be holding up during uh, active three rounders. O'Neill here is looking to bounce back and recapture her high profile prospect status in this one. But Lipsky has shown a lot of improvements in her last two outings and it seems like they meet at the right moment for a competitive fight. When it comes to the striking, O'Neill is probably the more organic of the two, but Lipsky, while a bit more stiff, makes up for it with good mechanics, being more resourceful. As you can tell, like Lipsky has drilled a big number of combinations well into her arsenal. So maybe she's a bit uh maybe she's a bit rogue, but but she she has a lot of options, like she has those available to her, she doesn't have to improvise, and that's one of the good qualities of that kind of fighters. Uh, the one moving forwards here is likely to find success, as neither is a defensive savant. The big question uh, is about O'Neill's ability to take the fight to the mat, as she would have a big advantage there, especially if she ends up on top. But Lipsky's takedown defense has looked fundamental and solid as of late, and while O'Neill can be sneaky during transitions, uh, I also think Lipsky will hold a technical advantage if they strike like in the clinch or in close quarters. O'Neill has probably more has probably more avenues here, as it's not impossible for her to win a like a solidly striking bout. While Lipsky is like unlikely to accomplish much if they end up grappling, so you see how O'Neill can win the fight anywhere and Lipsky needs to keep it on the feet. However, I feel like the matchup in particular favors Lipsky with her new tools and athletic and she's also like athletic enough to keep O'Neill in check. I'm picking the underdog here, I'm picking Lipsky by decision. We have Bandam Way action next. It is uh Cody Garbrandt versus Brian Kelleher, almost forgot for a second there. Let's begin with Garbrandt, the former champion. Uh, Cody is a lightning fast counter puncher with power in both hands and tremendous scrambling ability, but his mental game remained a big question mark after a couple of tough losses. At his best, Garbrandt moves on the outside with impeccable footwork, looking to time the entries of his opponent with, poor, with powerful combinations, favoring alternating hooks. In the case of fleeing opponents, he's also adept at tracking foes with switching combinations. Garbrandt's games revolves around his management of distance, so he can be frustrated by good jabbers and fainters that manage to close the distance without triggering his go-to counters. He relies a lot on distance as his trigger to fire. Uh, Garbrandt has good mechanical head movement, and that makes him hard to hit when he's on the back foot, not throwing hands. But he has been vulnerable inside the pocket as he throws his hand speed too much, uh, he can be out position, count without moving his head. Garbrandt on top of that is also a very good wrestler. He's good at finding reactive takedowns with clean finishes. Uh, and he can hide those uh, reactive takedowns with his head movement pretty well. Uh, top control for Garbrandt I would describe as just serviceable. Uh, not being too damaging from top, but he can be very dangerous during transitions. Takedown defense also a very strong point for Garbrandt uh, when he's on. Uh, and even when he's surprised with takedowns, he's good at generating scrambles and wrestling up to his feet. The confidence is the big problem with current day Cody Garbrandt, as a number of bad knockouts have made, me in, had made him conscious about his ability to take punches. Maybe even more than necessary, uh, I had this theory that Garbrandt, while not an iron chin, has a perfectly fine chin. He's just been blindsided 
out of position, throwing hands, not seeing what's happening, and that has led to the big knockouts. And also the 125 thing where he didn't look great. But yeah, this has led to a very few conservative outings lately, and that those cons this new like conservativeness of Garbrandt has diminished his once elite uh, danger that he presented. On the other hand, we have Kelleher, a stocky wrestler boxer. Kelleher is flexible with his movement, but either pressuring or sitting back, he's looking to set up big single shots and short combinations with feints. Uh, the lack of a jab and other small scorers mean he relies on getting into exchanges frequently, and he has a decent bag of tricks to pull from. Kelleher favors the left hook, but he packs power in both hands, and a good punch variety that allows him to put it... Uh, to good use this like deep bag of tricks that he has. Uh, this coupled with hard kicks, switching combinations, spinning attacks, uh, being unpredictable allows him to find the mark. While not super layered defensively, Kelleher is smart about picking his spots, moving his head and feet well on the outside to deny exchanges until he feels like he has a read to counter. His variety also shows up on the counter as he's capable of returning hard shots with both sides of both the inside and the outside slip, and he can also transition to takedowns on the counter. Kelleher is a strong wrestler who is also competent in both directions. Moving forwards, he will use big strikes to push his opponents back, using good pressure in footwork to drop opponents against the cage to change levels and attack the legs, mostly finishing the double leg. And on the counter, he can hide his shot with his head movement, similarly to what we said about Garbrandt. And, and he's good at finishing the single leg. Uh, with diverse finishes, he can go like high single and trip, he can run the pipe, traditionally on the single, transition to high crush, all that kind of stuff. Kelleher is a solid grappler with decent but not very damaging top control. Uh, he does his best work in transitions, especially fishing for his signature guillotine. Uh, he has many setups for that. Uh, he's a solid defensive wrestler, but has had trouble giving up his back, especially during get-ups. In a fight between wrestlers with big power, we have the speed and slickness of Garbrandt in one hand against the unpredictability, greediness of Kelleher on the other one. This fight really comes down to the ability of Kelleher of creating exchanges, our Garbrandt is hard to track down. And even during exchanges, uh, it is still a dangerous proposition for both of them. Garbrandt does seem to lose focus and his chin anxiety might cause him here because Kelleher has the power and that coupled with his tricks could mean like a single mistake can cost Cody a lot. It is really anyone's fight, to be honest, and while a knockout for either side is very possible, I feel like Cody's current commitment to outfighting and Kelleher's lack of a consistent jab, uh, which pretty much like Garbrandt, he has shown the ability to throw a very good one, like both guys that have like mechanically brilliant jabs and they don't use much. Uh, more weirdly, in the, in the case of Kelleher, I think he knows how to use the jab very well, but for some reason he doesn't like to use it a lot. So yeah, getting back on track, uh, the lack of consistent jab for Kelleher or other ways to control the pace uh, here mean that uh, Cody will get to pick his changes and circle out of danger. So I think I'm picking Cody Garbrandt to win a decision here. We stay at Bantamweight for the next bout, but for the ladies, is Irene Aldana versus Carol Hosa. Aldana, long kickboxer with a powerful left hook. Uh, she likes to march behind her high guard, sticking the jab occasionally and landing solid leg kicks, which she can find against circling opponents or as a counter to the jab 
and the right hands of her opponent uh, sleeping behind the, the, the high guard kind of peekaboo style. Adana is mostly looking to use the jab to line up her big right hand or use the thread of the jab to set up her signature left hook. She mostly moves her head during the first layer of an exchange, but her responsible high guard and counterpunching ability makes her dangerous inside the pocket. Uh, as she's so focused on exchanging one-on-one, -on -one, Aldana has a bad habit of following opponents to be right in front of her instead of cutting the cage. Though she has, she has showed improvability to sidestep lately in a few of her last fights. Aldana is physically strong, has good footwork inside the clinch to find knees, elbows, but mostly uses that to disengage. She's not a very good wrestler in open space. She mostly relies on generating scrambles once she hits the mat. And she's very aggressive doing so. Uh, you can tell like Diego Lopez, her jiu-jitsu coach, she has the same philosophy of being like super aggressive from bottom position. She's constantly looking for submission attempts to generate space or she will commit if she feels they are they are there. From top, she has nasty ground and pound and solid positioning, but she will forgo position for sub attempts that can land, can lead for her ending up on bottom position. Uh, mental game for Aldana has been hit and miss, but she's tough and very well conditioned. And on the other hand, we have Carol Hosa, a stocky, a stocky kickboxer. Hosa likes to pressure her opponents against the cage, looking to set up her big right hand, scoring with the jab and her inside low kick to fill up the, gap, the gaps. She packs power in all of her committed shots, but she's more effective at neutral space exchanges as she has trouble maintaining her stance when chasing an opponent and that can lead to her collapsing into the clinch. She also has big rear low kicks and that contributes to the damage and she also has a very solid left hook that she uses a lot to close exchanges after both the right hand and the rear kicks. Uh, Hosta is decently strong in the clinch but he could be for sure more urgent about pummeling, has been stealth against the face defense for long periods. She does have damaging kicks when she fights, uh, I mean, she does have damaging knees when she fights collar ties from open space and has good footwork to deny getting trapped against the fence if she's not surprised by the by the entries to the clinch or she's initiating the clinch herself and ended up against the fence. Uh, Hosa is a competent grappler. She's heavy from top position. Her power transfer, transfers well to ground and pound but her takedown defense can be suspect, particularly if countering transitions. Uh, Hoth finally, Rosa has good chin and cardio. Her, her biggest flaw is not having tools to dictate the phases of the fight and relying too much in exchanges. That will be a, uh, a, a thing that a lot of fighters in this card have in common. This is a rare bout between power punchers at 135. This fight has the potential to be violent. Uh, Rosa will have to deal with the reach and distance of Aldana, who despite not setting the distance with an active jabs or kicks, uh, she's very good at countering entries and tends to sit outside like kicking range. Leg kicks for Rosa here will be valuable as Aldana tends to put weight into her front foot and often relies on her movement to avoid kicks. So Rosa should look to punctuate her combinations with uh, the low kicks. On the inside, both are tough and durable. And even though Rosa does have a good left hook, uh, here defaulting to the right hand might give openings to Aldana's left hook. It is Aldana's output which makes me side with her in this one, as she is more likely to control the range with her footwork and not concede to Rosa the exchanges that she wants 
when she wants them. So I'm thinking Aldana with a decision here. And after that we have the last bout of the prelims. We have Josh Emmett taking on Bryce Mitchell who is taking the fight on short notice. So let's begin with Emmett. Emmett, an explosive, powerful, stocky team alpha male wrestler boxer. He likes to mostly operate at neutral space, feinting and looking for either counter opportunities or opening to explode with his shifting combinations. He carries big power on both hands and while he shifts to close distance, he's capable of delivering damage with the leg hook and the overhand from both stances. So that's a good asset to have. Uh, Emmett, I would say, has good defense at open space, having good ideas of how to move his head and his feet. But he can have trouble getting stuck at long range with jabs and kicks, uh, lacking several ways to close the distance and not having a system to actually like pressure opponents. He mostly, he mostly like vibes on the outside. Uh, Emmett doesn't really have like good transitions to offensive wrestling, but he has explosive double leg takedown. He can find it offensively using the overhand thread or more effectively as a reactive takedown. Uh, Emmett is solid from top position with good control. Uh, Emmett likes to control reads uh, to land ground and pound and generates a lot of power during transitions and from rights. The few times we've seen him off his back he has been hard to control. While Emmett can be effective leading and countering, his big, biggest weakness is the lack of like subtle strikes to dictate the direction of the fight. Once again, we have a fighter that doesn't have like this like jab and low kicks and faint system to control the pace. So he relies a lot into getting in, into exchanges where he can make his best stuff work. Uh, Emmett also lacks resources from long distance. And despite his speed and power, he's not invulnerable in the pocket himself. His opponent is Mitchell, a grindy southpaw wrestler grappler. Uh, from range, Mitchell pressures insistently being active fighting hands, throwing sidekicks with his left leg, looking to line up his straight left and a heavy body kick and a living knee. He has some semblance of of moving his head and angling when he's being attacked, but the mechanics when he does so are a bit on the wonky side. And he defaults to backing up in straight lines during long combinations. His takedowns are usually his best defense. On the topic of wrestling, Mitchell is a relentless chain wrestler. Uh, he's pretty good about finding his shot during transitions with solid level changes. If his shot doesn't allow him a clean finish, he has no trouble working prolonged single legs in open space or driving his opponent to the fence to work double legs or trips. Once on the mat, Mitchell really shines as he has tremendous control and transitions using leg rise wrist control uh, very well and has a good passing game as well. His submission game hasn't really been successful against high level opposition and his ground and pound have failed to do a lot of damage against good grapplers and wrestlers. Mitchell mostly struggles when he gets denied to grapple in the first layer, having to spend extended periods of time on the feet. Uh, has also had trouble getting reverse going for bad takedowns, but he's very resourceful from bottom position. I know overall uh, Mitchell is very tough and well conditioned. Uh, Emmett here has to take a page of former opponents, uh, Topuria and Ige and see what's available for him to replicate and honestly there should be plenty of things. Uh, Ige for example had a lot of success with shifting left hooks and Emmett is no stranger to those and Topuria was effective putting combinations together when he was on the counter, another thing that Emmett does pretty well. 
fighting out of a low stance and denying takedowns on entry should also come natural naturally for the stocky wrestler. Uh, there's avenues for Mitchell though. Uh out kickers had trouble Emmett in the past. And at this age, and after a few bad beatings, Emmett might not be the same anymore. Uh, that said, I'll stick to my to my C to relieve it approach, and I'm picking Emmett to get the knockout on the second round. Especially because uh, Mitchell taking the fight on like super short notice, uh, Emmett was already preparing for a southpaw and a more dangerous striking southpaw in Giga Chikatse. So Mitchell really depends on the on the wrestling and the grappling here, and I would I would have to see Mitchell like out grappling a wrestler of this caliber to believe it. So yeah, I mean uh, Emmett gets the knockout on the second round. Final pick. Before moving to the main card, I want to remind you guys that the full preview is brought to you by X Marshall. X Marshall, a combat sport brand dedicated to supporting the jiu-jitsu community. Their goal is to create a fun training environment with unique and exciting designs and promote the gym culture we all love. X Marshall offers a range of products including rash guards, shorts, spats, keys, streetwear, and training equipment. Use code the fight site to get a 10% discount on your order now. That's the fight site. All cap, no spaces. And for the best deals and discounts, sign up to their mailing list and follow their socials in all social medias at xmarshallofficial. Thank you xmarshall for sponsoring this podcast and I'll catch you guys with the main card. Opening the pay-per-view, we have a welterweight fight between Vicente Luque and Ian Gary. Let's get right into it. Luque, a Brazilian kickboxer with a tremendous left hook. It seems that Vicente Luque's best, best days are sadly past him. A Henry Hoof trainee for a long time now, Luque is at his best when marching his opponent down, attacking with his jab and leg kicks until he can make an exchange happen, while hitable and relying on a static high guard in open space, while Luque has the right read for a counter or he puts a combination together on the lead, he moves his head pretty well with his punches and his ferocious punching power is present on both hands. The right mostly uh, shows itself in the way of an overhand when closing the distance or during counters and as a tight hook inside the combo during combinations, inside the pockets, excuse me. Uh, with his trademark left hook, he can deliver huge power but can also sacrifice some of his power to sneak it using a sort of like jab left hook hybrid that he uses to score a lot. Luke can also present danger in open space and during transition as he's a powerful kicker. Uh, a sneaky knee and elbow user and an opportunistic takedown artist, especially inside the clinch. A sturdy defender of takedowns unless caught off guard during transitions. Uh, Luke fights hard for underhooks, but he can be inactive in the clinch for prolonged periods. On the ground, he is resourceful, having an ability to play deep half, wrestle up with single legs, and his best technique on the ground by far is the dart stroke that he can fish from a number of positions. He's always always fishing for that overhook. Um, and he also can use the threat of it to stand up or pass on the ground. Uh, while Lucas' power is still present, it seems like his ability to find big shots and finish the deal have decayed. Same with his reflexes and once inhuman toughness, all things have taken a hit lately. And his opponent, Ian Gary. A long and rangy outfighter, Gary likes to use his frame to keep opponents on the outside, making use of a decent jab, fast and clean one-twos. 
chambered kicks with little wind-up, powerful leg kicks and the threat of knees that allow him to dissuade head movement from his opponents. His defense mostly revolves around managing distance but has improved his ability to move his head uh, out of the first punch and come back with shots and has become a competent counter-puncher with both hands, I would say. Jerry maintains a good pace and usually gets more output once he gets uh, his reads and he's not shy about going back to the well with whatever it's working. Solid defensive wrestling against the cage, it is hard to shoot on him in open space because of the range he maintains. Uh, Gary seems to be pretty strong in the clinch, he can use it as a defensive blanket and has shown improved awareness of not getting control against the cage. Uh, in the past we've seen him like fires eating a lot of time against the fence, now Gary is more urgent about like framing, taking angles and that kind of stuff. He has been vulnerable to body attacks against the fence and his limited head movement in the pocket past the first shot can get him in trouble. He also has been vulnerable uh, closing the distance, getting timed with his head on the center line. Gary is athletic, well conditioned and seems very coachable. His ceiling still remains a question mark as he hasn't faced like actual top opposition yet. If this was a prime Luke, this would be a very compelling matchup. Uh, his ability to counter inside the pocket, the durability and athleticism would be by far the, bigger, the biggest test in Gary's career so far. And, and in some ways he would be the worst matchup that he has faced yet. And some of that's, those statements are probably still true. Uh, Gary's highest level opponent to this day was Neil Magny and even this version of Vicente Luque I think is like better than Magny. That being said, I think Luque has regressed enough that Gary should be should have a somewhat easy time poking at him from the outside in exchanges that Luque wants and just exploiting the limited defense of the Brazilian. Uh, especially now that he lacks the dynamism to constantly produce the pocket encounters that he desires. Uh, Gary wins a decision here. A uh, lightweight bout is next and I'm not very thrilled about this one to be quite honest. We have Tony Ferguson against Paddy Pimblet at 155, lightweight as I already said. Uh, Ferguson, the awkward and violent former interim champion is just a shell of his former self nowadays. Ferguson used to be a disjointed but effective fighter at every range. Uh, he used to have a, a battering ram of a jab, punishing frog kicks in open space, funky but effective combination punch, uh, boxing, awkward but creative elbows and spins, and slicing and conclusive clinch work via elbows and knees. All of this uh, accompanied by his wrestling game that despite being hit and miss when it came to defending takedowns, showed up big time on the mat, especially paired with his jiu-jitsu game. Both, both the mat wrestling and the jiu-jitsu together allowing him uh, great options for scrambling and submission threats. All of this uh, accompanied by next level cardio recovery made Ferguson one of the scariest pace fighters in the sport. And not much of that is left right now. Uh, Ferguson relied big time on his reflexes and those seem to have drastically diminished with time, reducing his ability to compete in open space as he doesn't seem to find his jab with any consistency anymore. Current day Ferguson is usually stuck on the outside looking to get on the inside where he still has decent power but is vulnerable himself because of his, of his wonky mechanics and slower uh, time of reaction.
His grappling has also been taking a big hit as he fails to defend takedowns and it's easier than ever uh, to hold him down in place. Ferguson can still, can still maintain a pace and he can still pack a punch, but the avenues for his success are very circumstantial nowadays. His opponent, Paddy Pimblet. Uh, Paddy is a bit of a, like a nameless all-rounder who relies on his ability to compete pretty much anywhere. Uh, at range, he will mostly look to land big single shots. He attacks with good variety, throws everything with power from his punches to his kicks, uh, which he's not afraid to throw like jumping switch kicks and that kind of stuff, like big actions. Uh, Pimplet does have some ideas about fainting and playing with the expectation of his strikes, but he suffers for counters quite a lot as he doesn't have much in the way of a guard or have movement when he's throwing and relies on like his power and timing to win exchanges. In the clinch, he's physically strong and has some tricks in the form of trips and throws to get the fight to the ground. And he does have a good eye for attacks in transitions, both in the way of damaging strike and submission attempts from crea creative positions. Uh, but he's not much of a wrestler. Uh, he will rarely look for takedowns outside of the clinch and also doesn't initiate much clinches himself. That's something very weird about him. He has been prone to being taken down by solid wrestlers, but he does a good job of bouncing back up to his feet. Scrambling is one of his best attributes, being someone of a backtake specialist, and his ground and pound is also of note. Other than his technical flaws as a striker and defensive wrestler, uh, Pimble's biggest flaws uh, come in his lack of focus and his over-reliance on his physicality and durability to take over fights. Pimblet is big and a good athlete, but it's hard to not see him hit a wall when he faces athletes of a similar or superior caliber who have more like coherent and well put together games. As Ferguson keeps going down in the level of opposition he faces, it is still hard even in this matchup to have much faith in him. Uh, Ferguson has had his moments in his last two fights, but those were against fighters who are aging like him. And he still got finished in both of those. That said, it's not hard to see that Chandler and Bobby Green are more skilled and less flawed fighters than Paddy Pimblet. What Paddy brings to the table is the physicality, intensity, confidence, and maybe more importantly, the well-roundness. Uh, that I think it's like the coffee nail in this one because it's... Paddy will have answers if he gets in any kind of trouble. And that's what... And, and Ferguson is not that dangerous anymore, so even if like Paddy gets hurt, he will be able to compete in the clinch, on the ground. Um, I think that's going to prolong the Ferguson's sad losing streak. I expect this to be a very messy fight in which Paddy simply is just able to give and take more than Tony can. Paddy gets a knockout on the second round. Welterweight is up next. We have Shavkat Rakpanov against Wonderboy Steven Thompson. Let's get into Shavkat. Uh, the lanky Kazakh really is a well-rounded uh, fighter, but in a unique way for current day MMA. At range, Shavkat fights out of a tall stance, managing distance well with in and out movement, constantly fading, looking for single shot openings uh, to capitalize uh, on the predictable entries of his opponents with good counters. If he doesn't get like the, the free open space shots or the counter reads, he will use his jab to pressure and draw out the fight that he wants. Rakmanov mostly favors his right hand on the counter, 
which he can land in the form of an overhand or a straight down the middle and his length and speed allow him to intercept foes close in the distance. Also a very dexterous kicker, he will look for leg kicks that he will set up with the jab or just land naked uh, leg kicks timing his opponent movement. And he will mix in quick spinning kicks that he throws with very little tail. Adversaries need to be careful of his back kick, wheel kick, change up. Uh, Rachmanov is also good at timing stepping knees, especially when pressuring against the fence. Uh, he will mostly use distance as a means of defense, but he does move his head well during counters on the first layer and deals with kicks better than most MMA fighters, making good use of checks, catches uh, and right hand, right hand counters for leg kicks. His footwork is mostly clean, but he can retreat in straight lines and rely, rely on his length too much when put under the pressure of combinations. He's also capable of countering blitzes with clinch entries, grabbing like a single underhook or wizard and attacking on the other side with uppercuts, hooks and knees. Rachmanov is a dangerous fighter uh, during transitions, mixing the faces of MMA well and being more than competent in all of them, to be quite honest. He will strike into the clinch during breaks and will mix his clinch takedown attempts with strikes when failed attempts create a space, especially very good at, at landing knees when uh, off the failed like trips attempts. He's also very strong in the clinch, having a good arsenal of trips, throws, knees, but he can take his time there and he can be lured into inactivity jerking for position. That's one thing that I've seen. Uh, Rachmanov is a solid top position grappler with big ground pound that he will land from posturing up with great accuracy. His submission game is also dangerous having a predilection for the guillotine. Despite having tools to transition and good counter punching, the pocket seems to be Shavkat's small vulnerable face as his head movement disappears past the first few punches and relies on his chin length and power to come out on top. Layer combinations con can also get to him since he's all about countering early or denying exchanges with distance. It would be interesting to see him defending against defense without real estate that allows him to dictate the action. So we have a few questions left about Shafka. We've seen a lot, but we still have quite a few more to see. And there are probably weaknesses in those areas. That's why he's been avoiding them. And Wonderboy, the Karate Kid, Wonderboy likes to, likes to establish a long distance with his plated bouncy stance. He usually likes to mirror his opponent to fight from open stances. From there, he maintains distance using linear kicks, jabs, rear straights, and the sidekick, especially from orthodox. Uh, lining quick roundhouse kicks uh, does uh, do the bulk of the damage for Wonderboy. His constant feigning output and variety make him hard to predict and ensure that he will land with regularity. His footwork in open space is clean, especially when he's leading as he's made sure to take angles after attacks, has good shot selection based on his positioning. And when he finds himself out of position, he has ways of paling. For example, uh, he used a tricky sidekick or back kicks um, when he's caught out of position to generate a distance and very few fighters how to know how to deal with those. On the back foot, things can get more sketchy as his mechanics don't really allow him to make uh, to take small steps. He favors sidestepping over pivoting. Uh, he has good counters when he makes fighters close the distance. Uh, especially because he like forces a very long distance between him and his opponent and uh, he finds like big rear straights from both stances when 
fighters try to blitz on him. Uh, despite the inherent flaws of his style, Wonderboy has been a lot harder to leg kick than you would expect. And even when he has been leg kicked, he has shown a great ability to absorb damage with his legs and punish them with darting strike punches. Head movement when he blitzes and when forced back are his biggest weaknesses. And as of late, his former very strong take on defense has taken a hit. Despite his age, Wonderboy remains durable and um, particularly well conditioned and has no trouble maintaining his high energy demanding style for a whole fight. The years aren't in vain though, and Wonderboy has lost a bit of speed and potency that allowed him a bigger margins just because he used to be like more dangerous than he is now. This could get very interesting if he stays on the feet. Shavkat might be the taller fighter, but Wonderboy fights very long, so he might find himself uh, against someone who can comfortably compete in open space for once. Rachmanov has shown to be way above average when it comes to dealing with kicks, but Wonderboy brings a variety, dexterity, and setups that his other opponents simply didn't. So it will be interesting to see if he's able to catch or counter with his with consistent results. Wonderboy does like to close in with blitzing combinations, and that could be a double-edged sword. Shavkat uh, can use his counter clinch entries to land big shots, but he will also be vulnerable himself, Shavkat, I mean, as neither guy moved their head much in those situations. Other than the age of Wonderboy, what tips the scale for me is Shavkat's ability to compete everywhere as Wonderboy has been taken down. And when he was taken down uh, against like Mohammed or Burns, uh, he has used his length to not end up in like super bad positions or generate space. Rachmanov being like this longer guy will probably be better equipped to control him in the ground if the fight hits the mat. And can also wear on Thompson with dirty boxing if they end up clinching a lot. It's a winnable fight for Wonderboy, but I gotta go with the prospect in this one. Uh, I'm taking a gamble and saying Thompson gets submitted for the first time in round number three. And with that, we get to the co-main event for the Flyweight Championship. We have a rematch. Alexander Pantoja re, uh, rematches Brandon Royval this time for gold. Um, I won't get into like every, both fighters. Let's talk about in general. Uh, Pantoja once again finds himself on a rematch. Uh, Royval looks to avenge his 2021 loss and win the title in the process. The first fight was contested at an insane pace and it saw both fighters engaging in grappling and striking. Pantoja was quick to look for the back and Royval put his trademark scrambles and high pace on the feet to good use. Even though he was losing in both areas, Royval was, he was looking like it was like all trending in, Roy's, in Royval's direction. But he rolled the dice defending the back too many times against Pantoja and he got submitted with a rear naked choke on the second round. Both fighters have fought twice since, uh, Royval getting two quick finishes against Machnell and Mateusz Nicolaou, in which he showed a more restrained approach, which still resulted in short nights for him. And Pantoja had a similar quick dispatching or former contender Perez, uh, followed by an epic five-rounder against Moreno. With that information, it is hard to predict what have changed since their first encounter. Despite Pantoja being only two years older than Brandon, I think the two years that have happened since 
should wait harder on Pantoja, uh, who's have had 10 more professional fights and it's coming off that grueling fight against Moreno to earn the championship. What Pantoja did show in the Moreno fight was an insane grit and determination to fight tired and show that his grappling shots carry late into fights, something that will come in handy if he doesn't get an early finish. Royval, for his part, needs to find like a middle point, I think, between the more measured approach he showed in the Nicolau fight and the insane pressure he used to bring to the table. He doesn't want to make any mistakes that will end up with Pantoja on his back, but he also needs to wear on the champion to maximize his chances, as Pantoja outgrappled and outstruck him when they were both fresh in their first fight. Pantoja needs to go for the back any chance he has, but it would be wise to go for more ground and pound at any moment that he gets any control, because damage will be very important if this fight goes in the long run. On the feet, uh, Pantoja needs to take the front foot and pressure Royval, since his chances moving on the outside against the longer fighter are not the best. If Royval insists in pressuring, he should use his forward movement against him to find takedowns and regain control of the fight. Uh, both fights would be benefited from bodywork, and Royval should go to the well often with his body kick, trying to pressure Pantoja into taking bad takedowns attempts that will further drain his gas tank. Royval also needs to be very picky with his submission attempts, as the champion is very hard to submit, and despite the challenger's top-notch scrambling ability, he needs to spend as little time defending uh, when it comes to grappling. I was expecting to pick Royval before they were stalling this fight and Royval might very well win here just because he's so dangerous and uh, the long fight I think favors him but I think Pantoja has some key technical edges especially in the grappling department that Royval just doesn't seem to be able to avoid like Royval is this tremendous grappler but, but he's not a super solid defensive wrestler and Pantoja just finds the takedowns in transitions, he's so sticky. So, I've, I see the champion taking advantage of his opportunities during dangerous positions on the ground. Going against my original hunch, um, I'm picking Pantoja to once again get a submission on the second round. And with that, we finally get to the main event. It's Leon Edwards versus Colby Covington for the welterweight championship. Uh, Leon here comes of his two very different bouts against Usman, the first where he was convincingly losing until he wasn't, and the second where he impressively dominated the champ. Uh, Colby lost so action more than a year and a half ago where he defeated uh, past his prime Jorge Masvidal, and before that he lost once again, once again to Kamaru Usman. Uh, this fight pits the forward pressure, volume driven, insistent wrestling style of Covington against the sleek and crafty well-rounded game of Leon. Both fighters are a southpaw and have some experience against fellow southpaws. Uh, both fought former lightweight Rafael Dos Anjos, where Kobe won a mostly optics-based close decision, and Leon Cruz to a very comfortable 50-45. Kobe also faced an over-the-hill Robbie Lawler, where he drowned the former champion with volume, but that was more than four years ago. And Leon, the other southpaw that Leon fought in recent memory, came in the form of an also past his prime, 
and a former lightweight to boot in Nate Diaz, a fight that Leon was winning like flawlessly before getting embarrassingly rocked by Diaz in the fifth round, still managing to win a unanimous decision. Uh, something to point out is that Colby was hurt by a Sopa right hook by Masvidal in his last fight. So that's something to consider in this Salpa versus Salpa. Now let's get into some details. Colby's uh, plan will most certainly involve pushing Leon to the fence. And while Colby certainly doesn't present the danger that Usman does, both in the way of damaging strikes and authoritative takedowns, Colby uh, is fearless and more willing to take chances than the former champion. And it is there where I think Colby might have a chance to make this happen. Especially because his game doesn't seem particularly affected by the close stance matchup, Colby is likely to walk forwards more insistently than Kamaru, and this will test uh, Leon's newfound ability to stand his ground and deal with pressure. Open side kicking was also very important for Leon in his performance against Usman, so Leon will either have to switch to orthodox or deal with Colby's pressure in a different way. Uh, for this, uh, Leon is a capable jabber, a solid leg kicker, and most importantly, a very good open space clincher. Even winning those exchanges against Usman, who a lot of people consider the best clincher in the sport, and handling Dos Anjos in a way that Colby Covington really just couldn't. Leon has to be careful to not be driven to the fence if he chooses to clinch in open space, uh, even though I think he's the superior, superior clincher when it comes to delivering damage, and should have the technical skills to defend the takedowns. Uh, Leon is known as a fighter who has like mental lapses, so it's very important for him to stay focused, and in the worst case of him getting taken down, just work his way back to his feet, reset mentally. Colby does bring some interesting cards to the table that Kamaru didn't. Uh, other than being a softball, Colby will put very long combinations together that might not be dangerous damage-wise, but seem particularly useful to deal with like a thoughtful fighter. Like uh, people talk about like the mental overload bullshit a lot, but but really Colby does make you think a lot with those long combinations unless you like take action early. Colby will need to put himself through the fire here. Uh, his technical flaws have seen him get hurt in the past against Usman, against Masvidal. Uh, Leon might not be known as a bona fide finisher, Usman head kick notwithstanding, but he's a sharp puncher who packs a big punch, so any extra sloppy movement for Colby could get him in trouble. While I think both fighters could get takedowns, especially during transitions in this fight, I don't expect them to spend any considerable amount of time uh, on their backs. Leon has the very top control of the two, but Colby's ability to scramble and mad wrestler are some of his best attributes. And on the flip side, uh, Colby is not a very heavy top player, relying more on mad returns. And Leon is coming off the strength of two wrestling heavy camps, so he should be like well prepared for this. This seems to be a lot closer than it should just because Colby brings to the table some troubling approaches for Leon, despite not bringing like the power or the skill that Usman did. That being said, I think the champion has looked, has looked better against better opposition lately, and he has shown the tools to deal with basically everything that Kobe will bring to the table. Maybe not at the same time, so that will be the big question with Kobe, but, but individually, Leon has the skills to deal with everything, so it's just a matter of putting it together, and that sometimes is like the hardest part, but 
I don't know, I'm counting on Leon to put it together with his champion confidence. The champ retains by decision. And that's the podcast, guys. I mean, that's all the fights. It's a very good one, to be honest. Uh, I like everything here. Uh, fights to look out for. Um, the only, I think, that has like big potential to be kind of boring is like uh, the heavyweights, Garcia versus Budai. And even then, if Budai takes over against a Tyro opponent, he, he could probably make it a bit like exciting, maybe. Um... Roundy Brown against Salikov is intriguing, but maybe low volume. Philly versus Almeida is a banger. A banger. Uh, I'm counting on that one. Ulanbekov versus Jordan will probably have some crazy scrambles. Uh, unless we see like an early guillotine or something. Melinfield versus Jacoby. Very high probability of being exciting. Uh, unless like Melinfield finds super easy takedowns and stays on top, not doing much damage. O'Neill versus Lipsky is gonna be action-packed. Garbrandt versus Kelleher. Probably, I, I, I was about to say like guaranteed action, but maybe Cody plays it super safe. Aldana versus Carol Hosa is going to be action. Like that one, you can count on being like violent at least. Emmett versus Bryce Mitchell, you know Bryce Mitchell is gonna go for it. So either Bryce, either Bryce like makes it boring from top position uh, or they're going to scrap. Luke versus Gary, probably going to be fun if you're not a fan of Luke, because I think this one is going to be depressing for me at least. Uh, Tony Ferguson versus Paddy Pimblet. I mean, if if you don't care at all about both guys, uh, it's there's gonna be action in this fight. The the thing is that it's going to be like very sad action. Rachmanov versus Thompson is very intriguing. Um, I want to see them strike, man. Like, I would be disappointed if Rachmanov gets, like, a super early takedown and just submits Thompson. Would be very impressive, but but I want to see them strike. That would that sounds like a good fight. Pantoja versus Royval. That one, it's, like, negative percent. Negative chances that it's boring. Like, it's it's Pantoja and Royval. Yeah. You cannot go wrong. And the main event is like, I think we'll have us on the edge of our seats for a while unless, until one fighter takes over. And I, I don't think anyone is going to like take super over. Like, I don't think any fighter is going to be out of the fight until the end. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just very well put together. Even the fights that are not like guaranteed action, I think are very well put together. Uh, They are matching like, Except for like Luca versus Gary and Ferguson versus Pimblet, those those are like like depression hours. All the rest are like relevant to the divisions, are matching people like in similar places. I, I don't know, I, I really like this card. I think the matchmaking is very solid here. And that's it, man. That's that's the podcast. Uh guys, remember if you want to support the fight site as an ongoing project, you can always support us on Patreon. You can go to our Patreon and for $5, you can get access to our Discord server and to our backlog of exclusive content. We have a lot of exclusive video content that we cannot put anywhere else. And it's all very exciting and it's a lot, actually. So, yeah, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I worked very hard for this. I know I always say this shit, but, but at least I... 
I made it for Wednesday, so I hope you guys enjoy. Please comment on Twitter, on Discord, whenever you want. What do you think? Or oh, what are your picks? Where do you, where do you disagree with me? Uh, I like talking about fights, so that would be okay with me. I uh, love you guys. Catch you on the fights. It's Fenyo signing out.